2 Samuel 8, if you're not there already. 2 Samuel 8, as we continue our study through the life of David. We find ourselves this evening in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we do praise you, Lord Almighty. We come boldly before you in Christ alone, and we cry out, Abba, Father. And yet in the same breath, we also recognize that you are Father in heaven. That you are God Almighty. That you are the King of creation. Lord, we are not under any delusion this evening. We know that it is by your grace alone that we stand. It is in your daily mercy that sustains us and keeps us and forgives us that we have hope. And so, Lord, we come gathered as your people this evening to lift your name and to praise you, for you are the Lord, the Almighty, the Lord who is gracious and good and kind. So we pray that even as we turn our attention to this passage, that we would see your greatness, that we would see your goodness, that we would see your faithfulness. That we would not go from this place, forgetting the things that we have learned, but that we would go living in light of who you are, the hope that we have, and the promises that you have given us, knowing that you are a faithful God, convinced of these things. So do a work in our midst this, this evening, where we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase... A statement piece. See, typically the phrase a statement piece, it's used in the world of interior design. It can be as simple as a unique light fixture in your house. Or it can be as elaborate as a sculpture or or maybe a loud painting. You can probably guess from the phrase that a statement piece, it is meant to be something that grabs attention. It is meant to be something, here's a word you're not expecting, that makes a statement. It's a statement piece. It is an invitation to conversation. It is a clue about who your host is, the things that interest them. Maybe it's a piece that they got overseas somewhere and, and it tells you that they are, a, they, they are a couple that travels. Maybe it's a really artsy piece that tells you that they have no taste. <laughs> There's lots of different things that a statement piece can tell you. If you were to walk into our house this evening after church... The statement piece that would grab your attention immediately is not an expensive painting that's hung on our wall. It's not a unique coffee table sitting in front of our couch. Rather, it's a bunch of shoes and some scattered toys that tells you that we are a young family with little children. Do you know that there's a statement piece in this church? If you were to walk into this auditorium for the first time, you would see a statement piece at the end of the aisle in front of you. It's not the beautiful designs, the the beautiful uh, decorations that Mrs. Rogers has done for us. It's this large, beautiful pulpit. 
This pulpit is a statement at the center of the room. It is a statement about what we value as a church. We value the proclamation of the word of God. It is the word of God that leads us. It is the word of God that takes precedence over everything and gives insight into everything that we do. This pulpit is a statement piece. It stands out. It is a big pulpit. And I think for good purpose, it it grabs your attention. Well, I start by talking about statement pieces because as we come to 2 Samuel 8, what we'll find is that 2 Samuel 8, it pairs with 2 Samuel 6, where David, as, as king for over a united Israel, where he captures Jerusalem and he brings the ark to Jerusalem. It also pairs with 2 Samuel 7, God's promise to David. By his own grace, this great promise of what God will do. 2 Samuel 8, this chronicle of victories that we will work our way through, it it pairs with 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 7 to be a statement piece of sorts. Together, they're a strong statement to to subsequent generations of a powerful kingdom led by a godly king. He's a king who puts God in his rightful place and a king who falls in obedient, submissive line behind him. In fact, he's not just any king. This is God's ideal king. It's David. In fact, one commentator, Bill Arnold, calls 2 Samuel 8, when paired with 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 7, the capstone of David's great reign. In this remarkable chapter, we will see David a strong general, David a wise king, and David a just leader. The first thing we see in the first six verses is David a strong general. As I already mentioned, these first six verses are really a chronicle of victories. And it starts out after this. Coming out of chapter 7 is God has given this great promise to David, including peace. But now with this promise in hand, David takes action. After this, it came to pass that David attacked. He attacked the Philistines and he subdued them. He took Mithagamah from the hand of the Philistines. We've already seen back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, where as soon as David takes the throne of united Israel, the Philistines attack. In fact, they attack twice, and twice David drives them out, eventually driving them out of the central area. They have now been relegated to the coasts. And as 2 Samuel 8 opens, David does not leave them at the coast. Rather, David goes out and wins a substantial victory. He subdues them. So it starts out with a clear victory to the west. In verse 2, we see victory to the east. As east of the Dead Sea, he defeats Moab. He forces them down to the ground. Subjugation, complete dominance. He measured them off with a line. 
With two lines he measured off those he put to death, and with one line full of those he kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. To our modern sensibilities, this is a bit of a troubling verse. There's a couple reasons why it's troubling. It comes across as very cruel. Why is David so cruel? Especially because it is these very Moabites that are related to him, his great-great-grandmother, through Ruth. Not only that, but it is these Moabites who in 1 Samuel 22, verses 3 to 4, when David's parents have been run out of their land, who keep them for him who watch over them. And yet, the reality is that God had commanded the Moabites to be conquered. David is acting in obedience here. Well, maybe you say, well, maybe he's acting in obedience, but why does he have to be so cruel? What we see here is he he lines up the army in three lines. Two of the lines he kills and one of the lines he spares. Why would David do that? There's a couple parts of this chapter actually that cause us to think that. Why would David do that? Why is he so cruel? Here, it is the slaughter of these Moabites. Going down to even verses 3 and 4. As David ham strings the chariot horses, crippling them. What you have to understand is part of, part of biblical interpretation. It's not just reading it, but it's, it's, it's getting into the mind, into the, the context of when this is written. And then applying it to our day. Now, we often fail to, to understand is that though this text to us today with our sensibilities, though this text screams of cruelty... To the original audience, it would have screamed strength. It would have screamed power. That is the idea of this chapter. David and Israel have risen up. They are no longer scattered tribes. They are one strong nation, a national presence. So the point here is not cruelty. The point is power. That is a point that would have been understood by the original audience. And so we see David conquering to the west, conquering to the east. Verse 3 and following, conquering to the north. Not only does he defeat the Philistines to the east, not to the west, not only does he defeat the Moabites to the east, but he has defeated Hadadizer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, to the north as he went to recover his territory to the river Euphrates. This is a decisive victory. In fact, two massive victories here, not only here, but then even in verses 5 and following, and the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah. David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. In total here, we have 42,000 who were killed. David sets up garrisons here in Syria of Damascus. It is this section here, verses 3 to to 6 really, 
where David takes a massive chunk of land. This is where Israel moves from a little nation to a national presence. And the Syrians became David's servants and they brought tribute. What we see here in these first six verses is that David is thriving politically, militarily, economically. In every way imaginable, David is thriving. Why? The clue is right there in verse 6. David is thriving because the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Or the idea there is even the Lord gave him the victory. This is what God has done for David. So in verses 1 to 6, we see a mighty general, a strong general, conquering. And this is not a general driven by bloodlust, but rather we must understand David's military conquest in the context of God's promises. God has promised his people going back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, to Moses in Deuteronomy 27 to 30, even to David in 2 Samuel 7. God has promised land. He has promised a kingdom. He's promised specific land. David is in pursuit of that. He is acting in light of God's promises here we find is a man who believes what God has said and taking action in light of that. What we find is that the Lord is with him. As you move on to 2 Samuel 8, verses 7 to 14, not only do you see a strong general, but you see a wise king. In fact, one commentator notes that this is really the central theme of the chapter. This is the crux of the chapter. And that's almost shocking to us because the excitement comes in the first six chapters. I mean, there's war, there's conquest, there's battles. There's a little bit of that here, but, but mostly here, David is just taking tribute. But that's the whole point because what we see here is the type of king, the type of man that David is. It's not just that he gets tribute, but what we see here that gives us a clue into this ideal king that God has set up is what he does with that tribute. Right from the beginning, we see the spoils of war, verse 8, also from uh, Beta and from Barathai, cities of Hadadizar. King David took a large amount of bronze, spoils of war. Then Toy. King of Hamath heard that David had defeated all the armies of Hadad Ezer, and Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad Ezer and defeated him. And Hadad Ezer had been at war with Toy. So Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze. Here again, tribute. So on top of the spoils of war, we see tribute, we see gifts. The treasure rooms of Israel are overflowing. God is blessing them. And here's the key phrase, verse 11. So King David built himself a bigger house. Is that what it says? So King David bought nicer chariots, invested in a stronger army. That's not what it says. 
It says, King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he subdued. He dedicated these to the Lord because David understood that it is God who gave him the victory. David also understands that it is God who gets the spoils, that it is God who gets the tribute. And I want to pause here because there's a, there's a principle here that we understand even from the New Testament. It's the principle of giving. Why is it that we pass an offering plate in church? Why is it that we give? Is it because in giving we expect God to bless us more? The more I give, the more blessing God will give me? Is that why we give? I think the answer is obviously no. Rather, it is like David understands here in 2 Samuel 8, all that I have has been given me to me from God. This is God's to begin with, and so we give in response to who God is and what he has given us. It is his to begin with. Just as David understands here, the spoils of war, these are not mine, these are God's. It is God who has given this to me, therefore it is God who deserves it. That 2 Samuel or 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 7, tells us to give not from compulsion, not from a, a deep-seated feeling of I, I need to do this, I just I have to, or I'm not gonna be right with God. That's not the right way to give. You don't give to God because you feel like you have to. You give to God with joyfulness and thankfulness in response to all that He has given you in Christ, in response to the physical blessings that He has given you. That's what David understands here. This is the type of man that David is. He understands that all that he has has been given him by God. So giving back to God is not even a question in his mind. There's no argument that happens here. It is natural because he understands that this is God's. In fact, it's one of the great differences that we see through 1st and 2nd Samuel, between Saul and between David. One man, David, has put God at the center. Every act that he has taken since becoming king has been good at putting God in his rightful place in Israel. Even here, in responding to these victories by giving God the spoils and the tribute. Whereas the other man took things for himself. And so David made himself a name, verse 13. He turned from the killing of the 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt, another great victory. He also put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. Once again, we see this mighty warrior conquering a massive army, a massive nation spreading out. Why? Because the Lord preserved David wherever he went the second time that we've seen that in this chapter. David's reputation is continuing to grow. He's not only a great warrior, he's a wise king. He's a wise king because he understands where his power comes from. He understands who he is because he understands who God is. And he rules then in submission to God. 
think we see that even as you come to verses 15 to 18. He's a great general. He's a wise ruler. He's also a just leader. He reigned over all Israel. And David administered judgment and justice to all his people. This is a statement of strength. David reigned over all Israel. Israel's no more nomadic tribes. Now it is a national power with expanding borders, with a strong army, with growing treasure stores. God has blessed them greatly and David rules powerfully and wisely and justly. David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Part of David's wisdom is in the setup of this authority structure. David's organization allows all of Israel to thrive. Because David is thriving as king, the people are thriving under his rule. There's justice to all his people. Chapter 8 ends with verses 16, 17, and 18, just a rehearsal of how it is that David is administering judgment. It's because he's not bearing the load himself, because he has spread out the responsibilities. Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the sons of Abiathar, were the priests. Zariah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were the chief ministers. See, because David understands that this is not about him, David does not have to take on everything himself. He spreads out the authority. In wisdom, he sets up generals and recorders and priests and scribes and governors and ministers. Because David knows his place. Because David knows who he is and he knows who his God is. See, as we come to the end of 2 Samuel 8, as strong of a statement as 2 Samuel 8 is regarding David and his rule, this is the ideal king. This is a thriving nation. And as strong as that statement is, it is an even stronger statement on the power and the faithfulness of God. What we see here in 2 Samuel 8 is that David is who he is and Israel as a nation is who they are because God is who he is. And I hope you hear that clearly this evening. David thrives, not because of who David is, but because of who God is. That's not only the key to understanding 2 Samuel 8, it is the key to understanding David's life in general. The key to David's success is the faithfulness of God. 
David knows who God is. He takes possession of the promises that God has made and he lives in the reality of those promises. He puts God in the right place in his life and in the nation. He obeys God and he gives God the glory. He's a strong general because he knows what God has promised. He's a wise leader who leads the nation to submit to God and to give him the glory, even giving the spoils to God because he knows who God is. David is able to be who David is because God is who God is. David is not the hero of David's story. God is. And brothers and sisters, by way of application, you are not the hero of your story. God is. So know your place. Know your place and live accordingly. What does it look like to know my place and to live accordingly? Well, here in 2 Samuel 8 for David, it looks like being obedient. Driving out the nations that God has told his people to drive out. Taking back the land that God has promises to them. It looks like obedience, believing God's word. But then it also looks like giving God the glory. Giving him the spoils that are rightfully his. David is bold in 2 Samuel 8, but he's also humble. He's bold based on God's promises, and he's humble before God. So what does it look like to know your place and to live accordingly? It looks like being bold, know God's promises, take hold of them, and live in light of them. And at the same time, it looks like being humble before God. Know who he is. Respond in thankfulness. Coming up on Thanksgiving. We give thanks because God deserves thanks. We give thanks because of who he is. Not because we want something from him, but because of all that he has done and given us in Christ. So brothers and sisters, you are not the hero of your story. God is. You can be who you are by the grace of God Because God is who he is. Because of the promises that he has given you. Because of Jesus Christ that he has given you. Because of his spirit that indwells you. Last week, we took some time at the end to to break up and to talk uh, a little bit of, of application. One of the questions was just in general, what are some of the promises in the New Testament that you can remember? Some promises that you cling to, that you can take hold of and live in light of? The same application is here this evening. Know those promises. Cling to those promises. Live in the reality of those promises and boldness like David does. Because God is a faithful God. Trust him. Trust his word. And give him the glory. Give him what he deserves. We're going to close this evening by singing the song, A Passion for Thee. It's number 412. And I pray that even as we come to the end of 2 Samuel 8, that this would be the prayer of your heart. Not that you would 
Look at 2 Samuel 8 and, and see how great David is. But that you would look at 2 Samuel 8, be challenged by David's example, and see how great God is. That you, from this chapter where we see God being faithful and being great and doing these things, and David responding to that, that, that the response of your heart would be, give me a passion, Lord. That I may see your greatness like David does. That I may live in light of your promises. That I may be faithful, for you are faithful. May this be the cry of your heart this evening. A passion for thee. Give me a passion, Lord. To see, to take hold of those promises. To live in light of them. To give you the glory. To honor you in all that I say and do. So let's stand together and let's close. With hymn number 412, a passion for thee. Set my heart, O oh dear Father, on thee only. Give me a thirst for thy presence divine. Lord, keep my focus on loving thee only. Hurt me from earth, turn my heart after thine. For thee, O Lord, set a fire in my soul and a thirst for my God.